Welcome to the Retail Smarts Podcast, where fortnightly we talk to the trailblazers and just the people that you want to know when it comes to retail. Today with us, we have Brian Walker, the founder of Retail Doctor and dear friend, really. Um, Brian and I have spent lots and lots of time together over the past seven years talking all things retail and and sometimes all things life. Um, And it's an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Brian, how did you get started in retail? Well, actually, my original training was in horticulture, of all things. And I joined Woolworths as a green gardening buyer and then through their store management program and then sort of built in the last uh, role years later after various line management roles and franchising, shopping centres, retail, was general manager of the Athletes Book. And then 15 years ago, which has just gone incredibly quickly, started Retail Doctor and into Retail Doctor Group as it is today. And what has kept you going in Retail Doctor? Because, I mean, it's a big thing to go from working, you know, in a, a really slow-moving beast like Woolworths or even Athletes Foot and then, you know, to go out on your own. <laughs> I'm not really sure. It was always a little thing inside me to see what was possible. And then in my latter years working for companies, I was always sitting and looking and listening to a lot of people who would talk about the what to do, and I'd grown up in the how to do. So that whole implementation thing was was big inside me. And I think it was just that I'd always wanted to have a go in some way, shape, or form. And, in fact, when Retail Doctor started, Dom, it was kind of a between-jobs play, thinking, you know, I'll go and do some training and coaching and was approached by a retailer. I went in and came back to them and said, oh, well, this is, you know, the retailer saying, what are you, what's going on with my business? I went into the business and said, oh, you know, looked at them and went, oh, like a roving general manager, effectively, came back out and said, well, just do X, Y, and Z in this order, in this priority, in this accountability, this is how you do it, da 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 help them do it. And I'm explaining that to a friend six months afterwards, let's say, the person says, oh, it's a bit like being a doctor, isn't it? And that was the start of Retail Doctor. Do you think that there's some correlation between your horticulture days and the doing <laughs> element? No, really, because it's quite a jump to make to go from horticulture to retail, you know, to then consultancy. But mm. it's it's not dissimilar in the sense that, you know, you're kind of out in the field doing things, observing things. And then, you know, fostering growth. I'm quite extroverted by nature and I always like to people and being around people. And so the, the similarity is even though I was in the horticultural landscape business all those years ago, I was at the front end of it, you know, working with customers. And, and even then it was basic rudimentary retail. And the reason I went on to study business was because I started to landscape in that period as well and thought, I've got no idea about how businesses run, so I went and got myself trained. And so I guess one step led on to another, but the commonality for me was always around people and, yeah, retail in that sense. I think retail is a really fascinating space when it comes to people, and certainly you yourself have grown a really diverse team and with interesting skill sets. What's your philosophy when it comes to teams? I think that the piece around teams is to, is to find people that are better than your good self and then build the environment in which they succeed. Uh, and that implies, you know, having a good idea of what due north looks like, being passionate. And for me, one of the really important ingredients about teams are that everyone is a student within their discipline. So recently we interviewed for a person who was really impressive 
And at the end, I asked this person about what they what they read and how they kept up to date. And they couldn't answer it because they weren't. They'd stopped. And so that ball, we didn't employ that person. So that's an important element to, to me around teams is that everyone has a personal desire to get better, be better, and so forth. You really kind of live and breathe that as well in the sense that, um, you know, you're, you're quite the multifaceted person, obviously, as we've learned about horticulture. <laughs> you know, you're also an avid surfer. Yeah, and, you know, you're currently renovating a house, you collect art, you do all sorts of things like that. And, and of course, you know, if people follow Brian Walker on LinkedIn, you'll also know that he is very well read and reads a lot and comments a lot around um, retail and what's happening in the industry. Based on kind of all those multifaceted interests that you have, you know, do you think that lends itself to, you know, the diverse space that is retail? Do you think it keeps you current with all the different trends because you are simply watching so many spaces at the one time? I mean, I know you work with the independent surf stores, for instance. Do you think all of those things kind of keep you alive to the changing nature of consumers and retailers and and the ecosystem? Yeah, I think the period of retail from the last three to five years is a gift because, you know, as you touch on, Dom, the diversity, the the role of technology, you know, when starting in retail way back, we didn't really think about technology in that sense. The role of technology, the the role of media, the role of retail, all the, the content just makes it fascinating because it is the intersection of consumers technology, and and you really see the way the landscape is shaping, not just for retail, for medicine, science, business, and so forth more. And so we just live in fascinating times, the, the fourth industrial revolution, if you like. Uh, and I personally get very sort of interested and involved, not just for my own sort of education, but for that of our clients and our team. So, yeah, and I think I like personally to keep engaged in a wide range of different topics. It's just me. It's always been that way. And what what are your predictions for retail moving forward? You know, obviously, you know, we spend lots of time obviously talking about, you know, post-COVID and, you know, before that we were talking about digital and kind of now that's definitely here and and definitely here to stay and, and continue to grow. What do you think will happen to Australia's retailers over the next, say, six to 12 months? Well, over the time of the next six to 12 months, I think you'll see much more focus on the brand as the brand grows. The channel by which consumers do business with retailers will become less uh, channel agnostic, if you like. It'll be much more around this fully integrated retail ecosystem. And if that's the end goal, we are largely somewhere approaching base camp. Did I tell you I've trekked onto various mountains around the world? But anyway, it's another story. Have you? Really? Which ones have you done? I've done past base camp for up past South Coalface for Mount Everest, um, Kilimanjaro, stuff like that over the years. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that as well. Anyways, Are you current? Okay. Sorry, I'm just on this because I'm really I'm very interested because I always I find it fascinating that um, people that set themselves, you know, almost impossible tasks in life. And I know that, you know, we shouldn't view small business that way, but in a nutshell, you literally went out on your own, which can seem insurmountable and yet still find time to train sufficiently to hike mountains around the world. Mm. I mean, where do, where do you think all of that comes from? Um, I've always had this piece inside me, which was about what's possible. So when I started Retail Doctor 
those years gone by, it was never about money. It was always, always about what's possible here. People would say to me, you can't build a replicable business from this base. You can't do this stuff. And it's kind of predictable, but for me, I always thought, given my relatively high regard for having a go and high regard for seeing what's possible, and I admire that in people. I admire in people the ones that say, uh, I wonder what's possible here. And so Would you call yourself more. a risk taker, though? Oh, probably, probably. I, I probably have low uh, regard for my personal risk in that sense, yeah. Part of your business, which is really fascinating, and, you know, some of our listeners may be aware of this and they may not, is that your work involves limbic insights. Can you tell our listeners what limbic insights are? Yeah, sure. So I started started with the licence for this and working in this very rudimentary neuroscientific approach because I was interested to understand years ago what was driving strategy. And often businesses were writing this thing called strategy without the voice of the customer. Then I started through our Ebeltoft, our worldwide alliance of partners, to look at the work our German partners were doing. Limbic is simply consumer profiling and it works on the neuroscientific perspective that 95% or thereabouts of our decision-making is influenced by our personality. And we have one core dominant personality in our lives and we map that for consumers And we play back to clients the emotional connection, if you like, of a consumer to a brand into a segmentation model. And we also do it for leadership teams because I've also learned that when leadership teams embark on strategy, it's like running a a marathon. Not everyone starts with the same level of passion, motivation, commitment, whilst they may appear to. The psychology of their limbic personality determines how they will approach it. And you often refer to yourself as the hunter when it comes to this kind of leadership profiling. I mean, does that involve risk? Like, is that part of of the hunter's profile or, you know, how does it work? Yeah, so there's different segments according to obviously the responses to the limbic model. So I personally sit probably more in the adventure, what they call the adventurous space. Um, and so that's exactly as you've described, likes a challenge, um, likes a challenge, doesn't have a great high regard for risk. Um, there's two elements for the sake of today. Now, um, so there you are, started my own business, haven't worried an awful lot about risk, like the challenge, and that's my profile. So if people are marketing to me, for example, gamification, challenge, achievement, but it's not achievement for the sense of um, personal gratification. It's achievement for the sense of, well, that was cool, what's next? And I guess, you know, in terms of, you know, back on that team element and and who you surround yourself with and and how you build that out, I mean, obviously you don't want too many adventurers, right? So what's the the perfect mix? Is there a, you know, a, a perfect solution? For our listeners that are trying to build teams or, you know, you've said that you want people that are ultimately better than you, but you also don't want them to be the same as you either, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, it's contextual. I think, you know, it, it depends on where you are for the business on that part of the journey. But if I took a sort of a high-level view of it, it is that three- to five-year plan. And it's about looking at trends in the marketplace and opportunities. And it's about understanding what you want, you know, to be your core offer. 
And then it's about finding people who have complementary and different skill sets. Now, the complementary part could be an approach, style, temperament, uh, but the core delivery is different. So in our case, for example, our insights is headed up by Anastasia, entirely different personality to me, but does a wonderful job of providing that that core insights piece. Um, and other team members all have complementary skill sets. And, and just touching on that, you know, what are the trends, you know, keeping up to date with kind of what's coming and, and planning and, and positioning yourself in that space? Mm. Um, you have two teenage daughters. Mm. Do you think, I'm sure they keep you very grounded, but do you <laughs> think that they help you understand those trends? Because I certainly oh, find the yeah. more I surround myself with young people, the more I learn about what this new world is and, and yeah. what it's likely to look like. Yeah, and again, you know, that they're a gift in, in so many ways and in one way is this whole world that they live in that is far more accelerated than the generation gap I'm sure I experienced with my parents. Social media is the obvious standout example. But the fundamental human behaviour is similar, you know, the need for tribes and groups and all that stuff, but the way they communicate, the way they respond, the lens by which they operate, accelerated exponentially through social media and the like is different. And so they're a study in themselves. And occasionally, you know, I'll check in with my daughters and listen to them. And I just think it's remarkable the power of brands, remarkable the power of social influences. All these aspects drive that thinking and therefore their consumption and their behaviour and their values. And how do you take that, do you think? You know, I don't want to use the word weaponize it, but in effect, yeah. use it for the betterment of, you know, future environments, business, retailers, all of those things. Because many of our listeners, I mean, we employ the most youth in the country. So that whole, um, you know, concept of tribes and, and social element and social activism and, and all of those things that we now see young people have not only interests but also a, like an in-depth understanding of really changes the humans that we're dealing with. I mean, if I think about, um, you know, a 15-year-old today versus, you know, when I was 15, it would be very, very different in terms of that yeah. exposure and, and just how much information they have. Yeah, I mean, and it's the pace of change as well. And, uh, you know, it brings us neatly into this piece around consumer insight and you're liking it to retail. Absolutely. So we we fundamentally believe and know that all good strategy starts with good, relevant insights, good understanding of that segment of consumer. And in that younger millennial who has the largest buying power, for example, you know, to not understand those people in real detail doesn't deliver a good strategy. So, so that's fundamental. And then on the other topic that's sitting within that question, I run podcasts and interview people and do all sorts of work in the future of retail, including industry 2025 type stuff, because it is fascinating. The world that our children and our children's children will live in, provided we keep the earth nice and sustainable, will be George Jetson Orwellian. And not that retailers need to plan for that today, but they need to start the first steps towards it. The world of augmented reality, artificial intelligence is already upon us. You know, this idea of the, the differing realities that those generations will move into, aided by technology, the role of data, it's extraordinary. And 
And that's why I started by saying today, that fourth industrial revolution, in time to come, people will look at this period and go, that was absolutely a new horizon for the landscape, without a doubt. Even the knowledge gain, you know, the stuff that puts out that says we need to gain new knowledge, it was three years, three months, it's accelerating the way we have to continually refresh our knowledge base. Do you think that knowledge gap, particularly around like futuristic next level of industrial revolution, will create a larger gap between your socioeconomics? Do you think that there's going to be people just vastly left behind solely because of connectivity, because of, you know, a lack of knowledge or a lack of interest or, you know, just an inability to obtain the technology as well? There's really great social infrastructure questions around knowledge, you know, society will need to address quickly around this this topic, and it's a good question to ask. Left, left unregulated in that sense or unprovided for, absolutely that gap will occur and, and it is already starting to occur. It's re- reflected in you know, the more stratified aspects of society without doubt. But then at another level, there's a democratisation, if you like, of knowledge that it becomes available for all those that have the interest and the intent and that wasn't around. But certainly society will need to be thinking very clearly about how it provides and particularly as technology accelerates and we'll move into robotics and all those aspects um, that, that have some influence for the skill and roles of the future. And in fact, the retail organisation of the future will look entirely different to the one we see today. Mm. And I think it's that, you know, it's that future of work conversation as well around, you know, what is that going to look like from a, a traditional retail perspective? I mean, you would get asked as much as I do about that concept of bricks and mortar versus digital. And, you know, we know that they have to work hand in hand as opposed to just having one or the other. But I think also lockdowns have really shifted and changed this concept of retail in the sense of physical retail and, and digital retail and, and kind of what that looks like. And certainly I think it's changed the perception of employees um, and even business owners towards their own businesses because that, you know, not only is resilience lower from prolonged lockdowns, but there is now this concept of kind of those, you know, human issues kind of merging into the work environment, whether it's kind of mental health or, you know, all sorts Mm -hmm. of other things. How do you think that'll play out? in the sense of people just being almost fearful about what the future holds because of the lockdowns they've experienced and and just, you know, the uncertainty around some of our international relations and China, amongst other things. I mean, it's it, it seems like it's a pretty heavy world right now. Yeah, it's a great point. And there's so many ways to address this. Uh, I listen to you and think to myself, well, if I talk about the, the, the very core of what we do, you know, in terms of the human behaviour, the need to be social, the humans are social by instinct. And that comforts me in the sense that people will come back to work, to what we know largely. You know, in a retail sense, malls will, you know, be reoccupied already. We're seeing that as we come out of lockdown in various states that the, the retail side of it will be very strong. And that orientation back to physical is very strong, largely for the socialisation. And people, you know, obviously wanting to hang out with friends and all those things. From a mental health perspective, um, it's really comforting to see, you know, organisations like Beyond Blue and Are You OK really stepping up because they need to and they're doing great work there, I think. 
and there will be consequences and there'll be consequences of enforced lockdown. But I'm an optimist by nature and I think that a lot of it will tend to come back to where we were. If I link it back to this idea that, you know, that if I link it back to this retail space once more, do we see online continuing to grow as one myopic example? No, we tend to see it flattening out and we tend to see category-specific integrating and that's your point around the integration. So overall, in a sort of a, a broad sense, we see a lot of the behaviours pre-COVID coming back into society, but with a consequential adjustment in certain areas, if you like. The other thing too quickly about um, consumers is that deeply habitual, this idea of being social, instinctively social, but we will also enjoy the technology-driven benefits of things like this, you know, where we're able to communicate via this technology. And how do you think our supply chains will evolve now? Um, well, the same, in much the same fashion, I think supply channels will, you know, we will know that fulfilment is one of the great differentiators, it's very consumer centric, but I will see far more evolution in terms of technology around robotics, AI, and all those great things. I think retailers will be not to perhaps put all their product sourcing in one basket. Mm. So hopefully we'll see, you know, back a little bit more of a bounce back for localized manufacturers. Um, but I certainly think that the the idea that retail starts when the product arrives at a shop or into a distribution centre and then is transferred to the customer, we'll think much more in terms of that full end-to-end, you know, and, and so you'll see much more thinking around origin of price, the product, sustainability will play a big part, environmental issues play a big part, fulfilment in a much faster, accelerated way. Speed is really the topic there. And then fulfillment ends when I physically have the product as a customer. So it'll start way back at the ethics of origin all the way through to consumer. So retailers increasingly will need to be across that. I think one thing we've seen in the last 12 months uh, back onto retail is the businesses that through good planning or whoever who started to invest in their platforms, started to invest in their IT infrastructure, really, and started to see the world in this retail ecosystem, or fluid retail as we call it, and really thought through that, were much better positioned than those that didn't. It's it's really, it's it's fascinating, I think, just because of, you know, I feel like the acceleration of everything is there. It's like a perfect storm, you know, whether it's digital, whether it's, whether it's shoring up those supply chains, you know, whether it's diversifying supply chains, it's very similar to diversifying how you're communicating with your consumer as well. It's almost as if it's all kind of hit at once because they all play into each other. But, you know, very evident that obviously we work in an incredibly diverse space, especially when it comes to, you know, all of these topics that kind of dovetail into one realm, which is this, you know, concept of the shop. And it's funny, I don't know if you were actually in attendance at Retail Global one year, but we we had, um, there was a speaker called Bob Swartz and he talked about this concept of merchants and how it's in people's blood as to whether or not you're a merchant or whether you're not. And, and that I think is very true. Mm. A merchant, no matter how many failings, you know, whether they get up or whether they don't, will find a way to sell something or anything. And if it's in your blood, it's yeah. just, it's kind of there. And I... 
I think that, um, you know, you are certainly the epitome of merchant, whether it is consulting or um, shoes or, you know, whatever it is. Um, And that's not to say that you're always selling something, but um, I think think it's really evident in, in how much effort and knowledge you have about the space and how much time you take to ensure that you're informed. Um, so thank you for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure hearing from you and, and just your insights about all things, whether it be culture or, you know, hiking Mount Everest or, <laughs> or Olympic insights, you know, you, you are a very, very diverse um, professional and, and we're, we're very lucky at the National Retail Association to obviously work alongside you. So thank you for your time. Thanks for yours, Don. It was a pleasure. Love the questions and, uh, yeah, look forward to the next times. Want to know more about the Australian retail industry? Visit nra.net.au for more insights just like these.